0: Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com.
1: Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are
0: contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is Howard Lidson. It's impossible to summarize Howard's resume, but he's best known for founding StockTwits and as a private and public market investor. Speaking with Howard is like being at a stand-up comedy show based on finance. If Larry David was a portfolio manager, he would be Howard Lidzen. We start with a hilarious story of his early career at CBS, then move to why he said no when Fred Wilson brought him the Twitter deal, his investing philosophy, the d economy, and a lot more. Please enjoy this conversation with the one and only Howard Lindzen. In prepping for this interview, I was asking a mutual friend, Barry, I was like, the way I would describe Howard, it's Larry David goes to Fidelity. Is it a shtick? Is it a thing? I don't get it. Everything's accidental. You're doing this, you're doing that. I don't even know where to
1: start, but is it a shtick? It's not. So here's a true story because it's almost like Larry David went to Fidelity. So first of all, unemployable. So if I'd somehow lied on my resume, because I went to ASU and Fidelity's not hiring guys from ASU. So if I got into Fidelity by day two, even before Slack, they would have fired me. They would have said, the fuck? Who's this guy who thinks he might be the next Larry David, even though we don't know who Larry David is? He doesn't know how to do spreadsheets. He has a bad attitude and he's dressed improperly. Get rid of him. But the true story that happened to me, so I started the show Wallstrip on YouTube. CBS buys it. It's a tiny acquisition. It's under $10 million. But to me, it's a lot of money. And because the acquisition was such a small price, there was no CBS train. There's no handbook how to behave as a CBS employee. So it's literally my first day working for CBS. I'm so excited about my car. I have a CBS card. TechCrunch article comes out. And Aaron Task, who at the time was working at Yahoo Finance, street.com before, blah, yada, yada, calls me because let's go skating in Brian Park we will talk about the acquisition. We'll put it on Yahoo Finance. I didn't know I'm supposed to call CBS and clear press. The day before, it's Howard Lindsay Enterprise Enterprises, Wall Street. The next day, it's CBS. And I'm like, yeah. sure, I got nothing to do. So we go in Ryan Park and we're skating. And the first question was a loaded question because it was a bubble. We had no revenue, blah blah blah. And he goes, "Did CBS overpay for Wall Street?" Very nonchalant question to someone who owns his own company. And I said, "Of course they did." But then I go, "But I know I said but." It was a joke, and they ran a headline 20 minutes later that said, "Howard Linsen." This is a day after the acquisition, mind you. They ran a headline on Yahoo Finance. And it's just like Seinfeld. Howard Linden says CBS overpaid for Wall Street. So imagine you're Les Mundez, assuming he's wearing pants at the time, because he generally didn't wear pants, as we found out later. And he's just looking at fucking headlines. And he's like, who the fuck is Howard Linton? So he picks up his phone and he calls Quincy Smith, who's my boss, and probably chewed Quincy's He's running all of CBS Interactive. Les Moonves goes, who's this motherfucker, Howard Linson? Fire his ass. I'm literally at CBS the first day because all Les Moonves does is read press about CBS. So that's why I
0: wouldn't last a day at fidelity. What like, happened? Did you get fired from CBS? Did the deal close?
1: So, yes, the deal had closed. I was phantom fired. I think no one knows to this day, but Quincy had instructions to fire me. But Quincy, I think, chickened out, and I was like Clarence Beeks of CBS for the next year. And I would go into my mailbox on the first of the month and hope my check was there. But I was Jeez. excommunicated my very first day at CBS. Last Monday. I don't think you were
0: meant for corporate America. Wow, what a start. <laughs> the reason why I said the Larry David shtick is it seems like learning about your background and caring so much about you, you did Wall Wallstrip. You went on to do stock twits. You run a hedge fund, Venture Capital. But every time I listened or prepared for this, it always felt like, ah, shucks. I fell into this. It's the story of accidental success, and that's what I mean. Connect the dots for me of how we go from Wall to hedge fund, venture capital, Twitter, all this stuff.
1: Born on third base, upper middle class Jewish family, Toronto, and the world was good. No war. My dad was a lawyer. So you had a Jewish neighborhood in the 70s. Your peer group was everything. If you were lawyer, doctor, dermatologist, accountant, that was fucking your choice. Or a furrier or a deli guy, if you wanted to be an entrepreneur. There was no internet. There was no spreadsheets. Did you think about stand-up comedy? So the story is in the 70s, in Toronto, it was the center of the universe for comedians. No different than Stanford, the last generation for engineers. And it was Harvard for investment banking and lawyers. In the 70s, if you were my age in Toronto and you were interested in arts, you were at Yuck Yucks every night hanging out with comedians. You had Second City, Chicago. You had John Candy. I was doing stand-up. Jim Carrey was doing stand-up. Mike Myers. You knew they were going to be great. They're 15 to 20 years old and they were killing it. So you were just in the audience backstage witnessing magic. And I was terrible. I was 16, 17 years old and trying my stuff on stage. And think about it, unless you're insanely talented, you have no stories. Like yeah. I gave you a CBS story, I would kill on stage with that story now. But if you're 16, you don't have a less moonbez story. You have <laughs> I wet my pants. I don't know what your story is when you're sixteen. You're not even drinking yet. So unless you were insanely funny and could do voices and what Mike Myers was doing characters and Jim Carrey could do impressions and contortion. That was a gift. I didn't have that gift. But I was surrounded by great comedians and I just couldn't put up with the lifestyle. You're Jewish, you gotta go to college. So I went to yeah. college, gave up comedy, but it was always in the back of my head. It was in the water in Toronto in the 70s. So I was lucky.
0: This is totally not what we're gonna talk about, but someone was tweeting about it and I thought it was so poignant that comedians are the truth tellers. They're so self-aware. They're able to hit a nerve and deliver a message that cuts through, especially when everyone's so torqued up and so upset or animated or enraged. That there's just Mm -hmm. something I've always loved, stand-up comedy. I've loved the story, the delivery. To me, it's like the greatest art form. But what Mm -hmm. is it about comedians?
1: Well, we just did our first comedy investment, but I've traveled in comedy investing for a while and have lost 25 grand times five over the years. There's just no scale in that business, but we figured it out now. The thing about comedians is there was no line. Until Hamas recently, it's not funny. Nazis were not funny. And by the way, people still do Nazi jokes. It's risky. Even Seinfeld mm-hmm. is better. But you better be fucking good if you're going to do Nazi. So I think what makes comedians great is Louis C.K. went too far. Some people go too far. What's his name? Who I love, the British guy who did the award shows. I'm having a senior. base. He's a leader. He doesn't fucking care. And we need to go back to where everybody can be Ricky Gervais. These people should be revered, not punished. Okay, their behavior was bad, but relevant to what? Hamas? We now have some context for who we're going to fucking shame. And I think comedy is going to have a huge upswing. But what makes us different is we're willing to make fun of ourselves, most of us, even Elon Musk. What makes him bearable is he does have some twisted sense of humor. What made Trump unbearable is he had no sense of humor. That's how close it is between psychopath, someone you hate, and someone that you think is truly gifted. So where our comedy company is going is really amazing, PunchUp.Live. We just funded it, but it's basically comedians have been, like you and I, cancelable because they were told by their agents, get on Twitter, get on Facebook, and get on YouTube and we'll give you CAA, we'll work with Facebook. So they got all these likes, but they don't own their customer. Entertainers have been screwed by social media. Some deserve it, some do, but they've invested all this time in social media, and they don't own the customer. So we think entertainment's going to move back to email. Really, you got to own your customer, own your own domain, be the master of your domain. And owning your email list is the closest thing to owning your customer. And people yeah. got to own that. They were trading it over to YouTube for subscribes. They were trading it to Twitter for follows. But guess what? You got screwed. How do you
0: play that game well? So I think a lot of things are games and Twitter feels like one of these ultimate status prestige games that people want to play. You did stock twits. The theme throughout your life has been this social networking thing. How do
1: people play that game well? Well, the game's broken because the algos are completely out of our control. If you say something wrong and you get shadow banned, believe me, it happens because I know I can check my numbers. How do you fix it? Who do you call? It's the closed really system. The game was won by Elon Musk and Donald Trump before him. So Twitter was great until the game got won. And now it's owned by someone who actually doesn't just own it. He won the game. And he could win it fairly. He won it pretty fairly. And now he's not doing it fairly. But it's still the best product because it's got the most truth on it. It's also got the most hate and the most disgusting stuff. Not 4chan-like, but for something presentable to the public, Twitter is by far the best product. Because if you search for the truth, you have the best chance of finding people that speak more truth than most. And I love that. It cuts right that.
0: Let's rewind before social got bad because there's a story about how you met Fred Wilson, and I want to rewind to the internet early days, which seemed to have such a big mark on your career. How do you get connected with someone of that level so early in your investing career?
1: Well, it wasn't early, I was 40. I didn't participate really in the first internet because I was a hedge fund guy, and it was like a DOS-based world for hedge fund people. It was Windows. It was fucking dark out there. So I got lucky. Because there was an Apple store in Phoenix at the Biltmore, and it was one of the first Apple stores. and It was right across from my office. And I stumbled in there, and everybody was skeptical because Gateway Computer and all these stores had failed. And I stumbled in an Apple store, and I definitely wasn't going to buy a computer because I had to use Windows for being a hedge fund and all the software, but the iPod. And the minute I hit the wheel on an iPod, my world just changed. So I went down the rabbit hole, not through the internet, but through Apple's hardware. So the first internet was nothing to me because it was such a bubble. It happened and it was gone. And then you had 2001 to 2005, nothing. And then YouTube. And YouTube hit me directly between the eyes. I saw cat videos, but I knew it was going to be something. Finally, we could disrupt CNBC. And that was my whole thing. I hated CNBC. You have to have an arch nemesis to be successful. And my arch nemesis was, Who is that asshole on TV that's been wrong for three years and is telling me now about oil? So I was just that idiot hedge fund guy yelling at my TV for five years. And then YouTube comes out and I had been on Fred Wilson's blog through a Google search for another company that I was interested in. and I just emailed Fred Wilson, who I was goofing around on his blog for a year asking questions. I said, Fred, I'm going to put CNBC on YouTube. I cold pitched him that. And that's how my internet career started with that pitch to Fred Wilson. And sometimes you get lucky. I was the right place, right time. Did I know that Fred Wilson had also backed the street.com? No. So I hadn't even done my research. That would be lucky. He was like, (laughs) this is such a Larry David episode. So it is, and Fred was the first one that just got the whole joke. He goes, I never even cared that he was street.com. Turns out, Fred, at one point in the year 2000, was the CEO of the street.com after they know everybody. Exactly, because the stock was at 100. The market crashed. Union Square was a big investor. And for an hour, Blue Star Airlines, Fred Wilson was actually the CEO of fucking street.com. I didn't even know any. Yeah. And Kramer used to send him emails like I would at three in the morning about stocks. So Fred was really into the markets and i just caught him in a moment where he had his same epiphanies like, yeah
0: Howard, you're the right guy to do this before we get off that one give me the street.com history cuz on whatever other episode someone called you the godfather that there was you and jim cramer and then all these people came out of the same lineage of this fin twit started there what happened at the street.com that gave it such long history
1: listen jim was the man before he became a character, he was a mad genius. Right? Was he a good investor? I've never met him, really. I've only talked to him briefly. Don't know anything about him. But remember, as a hedge fund guy myself without a lot of money, the street.com was like a rocket. It was like, what? I don't have to pay two grand. It felt real. To someone who went to ASU and had made some money in his first company, and was starting a hedge fund and didn't have Bloomberg and didn't have all the things, it just felt like the internet. Whoa. Kramer was just banging out things, and Todd Harrison, and they seemed legit. He was such a good writer, and I'm sure he still is. He had like murderers wrote Barry was writing for him, and Andy Keth, like just, I forget some of the names, but Herb Greenberg, and just anybody who was anybody who went through the street.com. So I was just a street.com fanboy. But then once he started going on CNBC, you now you're melding the new world with the old world. And that's when I became anti Jim Cramer. I'm like, you're diluting everything that's pure about the internet. So it became like my arch nemesis because now I had to see him on TV and it just didn't feel scarce anymore. The alpha just felt gone. So I just was disillusioned with the whole thing. And then Yahoo Finance became our thing because a bunch of characters that didn't have real names. Even Dan Loeb was in the Yahoo Finance comments, Mr. Pink. We were all using Yahoo. In 1999, you were on the Amazon stream of Yahoo Finance, if you were a retail person, talking about stocks in a 20-minute delay, thinking you were ahead of everybody. <laughs> the world was very different not that long ago. So that was the original. And Barry Ritholtz was one of the originals. And WordPress came along, and then Google Blogger got me hooked. I could write by myself, and then WordPress, and then Twitter. And it was just comedy meets form meets... I love the idea of writing my notes down. I think the best investors do write. Just that habit of writing without an audience and just feeling like getting it out of my brain. And WordPress, the products kept getting lighter and lighter. And then Twitter, just the first time I really used it, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I can see the benefits of it. How do you think about the trade-offs as an
0: investor, putting your ideas in the forum like that, of the pros and the cons? Because I feel like what ends up happening is when people do that, everyone goes after your worst picks and drags you. There has to be a pro and a con where, as investors, we were trained not to be too public, not just because you didn't want to share, but there's this idea that as a PM, if I told you my idea, I've committed in a way beyond just keeping it in my own head. Where now, I look bad to think, I really respect Howard, I told him to go buy X, Y, Z, and now we're at dinner again I'm like, he's doubling down on me and I'm backing in, I'm creating this bias that I've said it out loud, So now I have to stick to my guns or else I'll have some level of shame. I think it's mostly
1: not worth it. So let me start there. But I was wired differently, meaning Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to get people to buy my ideas. I was just doing it. Think about Apple. Was there any alpha I was giving up by saying I love my iPod? In the end, it helped me stay with it. Mm -hmm. So if you think long-term, it's the opposite. Not writing it down, is a crime because it helps you follow your own story. But yeah, I think it's a fine line. I try and now on Twitter not share ideas because you're right. People are just out to get you. Twitter has only become a place where I truly try and be outraged, like standing with Israel right now or goofball. There's nothing in between left. And it's a bummer to me because I invested a lot of time. Stocktwits now is a place where I really am just talking about ideas. I don't tell people what to do. I'm telling people what I'm doing. So I think there's a fine line. So to answer the question, I don't think I've answered one of your questions, but to answer specifically answer one question correctly, I would say on StockTwits, everybody asks me what I'm doing. I always tell people, I will never tell you what to do. I'm telling you what I'm doing because I don't know what your risk profile is. I don't know how much money you have in your account. I don't even know if you're a human. So I've learned to not share ideas other than what I'm doing. Because I don't need you to talk me out of it. And by the way, if you think it's a bad idea, I'll digest it. I'm a big boy. I'm not going to blame other people. So it is a fine line.
0: I want to go into how you think about your public investment process versus your private investing process. So let's start with the public investing process, because you said something recently that coming from the Fidelity side was a little bit wild to me, which I liked was something to the effect of, all I need to see is the price. The rest of it's all bullshit, essentially, if I'm putting it. Walk me through how you think about public security investing.
1: Well, there's so many ways to do it, and I'm always learning. So I made Gavin laugh today. Someone praised Gavin Baker, who I'm a big fan of, for saying, I don't know. And I agree, you're supposed to say, I don't know. But I just goofed in and said, you know, my edges, I absolutely always know, and I'm never wrong. And they knew I was being silly. And then he LOL, and I said, that's my second edge. I make guys like you LOL. <laughs> so he lol again. I got them twice. That's the game of Twitter. But price is all that matters. Because there was this argument in the 06s and 07s of Roger Ehrenberg, a mentor of mine, a great ambassador, big data. This is this whole big data thing. And I'm like, the fuck does that mean? You guys are making this shit up. It's small data, big data, medium data. If you pull up Google and I pull up Google right now, we're going to probably see the exact same thing from 20 different sites. It's a small piece of data. But the amount of data, the amount of shit that had to happen for both of us to see that on different websites, different parts of the world, fucking blows my My mind. Biggest data that you can imagine. So I just assume that the price is the only thing that's somewhat telling the truth, especially if it's not delayed, which is why Twitter was such an epiphany to me versus Yahoo Finance, which was 20 minutes delayed. So if we all have the same thing at the same time, and I assume the market's rigged, which it is, how can you not assume that the market's rigged? The first thing is assume the market's rigged. The second thing is, if the market's rigged, the only thing that's not rigged is assuming we're all looking at the same price is the price. And then if you zoom far enough out and look at enough patterns, you can see things. Now, can I tell you what's going to happen tomorrow? Absolutely not. And I don't trust people that say that. But if you can tell me what's going to happen over two years, probably a better chance, especially if you use the product or the company, if you understand the company and understand the catalyst, understand the environment. And if you show me 50 charts, I could probably figure out what industry that company is in. And then if you show me a bunch of charts from the same industry, and I could probably pick out which company is which. Because you can tell Based on the rate of ascent, how well a company's doing and the growth of a company and the catalyst. So I do think price is really all you need. That does not mean the fundamental analysis is the most important thing, because that's where edge comes in. How is the market rigged? Well, you worked at Fidelity and I worked fucking on Yahoo Finance. I had no edge. The market's rigged just there. Just the fact that retail people thought they could win, just the fact that me and Dan Lober on the Amazon thing and Phil Parlin and Barry Rittles was like, hmm, and like hedge funds had already made their trade 20 minutes ago. That's not that long ago. <laughs> How is it not rigged? They had a chance to be less rigged with Twitter, but it actually made it more rigged. Elon Musk can move the markets. What was this right. thing? said? Tesla 420. The 420. How did he get away with that? We went from 20 minutes delayed to him actually forgetting if he did it or not, or if he had intent. He fucking did that. And that was the idea of when I saw Twitter and I called Fred Wilson, I said, Fred, get Jack and Ev on the phone. I have Yahoo, twitter.finance.com is going to rule the world. That's what I told Fred Wilson. And Fred agreed. Fred was like, this is a fucking great idea. And my idea to Fred was, why don't they just slow down the feed for 40 seconds? Because... So high speed. feed? Well, I'm just saying, remember, 1999, was 20 minutes delayed. Twitter was real time. If Kim Kardashian farts, and you hear about it two minutes later, does that yes. change the fact that she farted? And does it matter if it smelled? But more importantly... Does it matter to the markets? No. No. So you can give that away in real time or 10 minutes delayed or whatever. But if we kill Osama bin Laden and a Pakistani guy in his backyard says, I just saw like a U.S. helicopter and you have the right ability, that was the very first moment. I remember where I was when Osama Mm -hmm. was taken down. It was 10 o'clock. I was landing in San Diego and it was in a taxi and the radio, we got Osama. And I checked the futures and the futures were already up a percent. And if you knew how to work Twitter, you had a great trade. So my idea back then to Fred was, Fred, eventually this shit's going to happen. The president's going to tweet and everybody's going to see it. And Fred loved that idea. And I said, Fred, they can give Twitter away for free to everybody. But as soon as Goldman Sachs realizes there's a 20-second delay, they'll pay $100 million a year for that latency. And Fred got it. He was like, yeah. Yeah. And, And Jack were like, kumbaya. What about peace and solidarity? and LGBTQ and BDS, and they didn't care. They cared about traffic on the San Francisco Bridge, and they didn't see the financial part. So you saw
0: YouTube and your mind went off, but I think the story is true that Fred brought you Twitter at the seed stage and you passed. Yeah. This gets me to like my private side of investing. If public securities are based off price, how do you see YouTube and instantly know? And as a social guy, why did you say no to Fred
1: Wilson on Twitter at Seed? Look, I made money on Wall Wallstrip, and I was in the cabal. Now, I wasn't rich enough to be in that cabal. So Fred was just sharing an idea with me. So at the time, it was 2008, maybe. I don't know if the crisis had started yet. And I was using Twitter. I hadn't really thought of stock tweets yet. And it was stupid. I was tweeting from my BlackBerry. There was no iPhone yet. And I was only tweeting about where I was going. to the. I'd be in New York, and I'm like, oh, I got to take a pee. My idea was to tell people where I'm peeing. And the only people on Twitter at the time were VCs and, oh, he's so funny. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing with this product. So there was fail whale, there was stuff going on, it was working. The product was actually popular. And when Fred brought me the deal, the price was three on 17. So in hindsight, idiot, you just say, yeah. But remember this 2007 or eight, deals were happening like one on two, two on five. So they see a deal three on 17. I remember saying to Fred, I was yelling, I'm like, dude, you're an idiot. How is this going to be worth two hundred forty-four billion times my money? <laughs> that was how good I am at this business. This is why you say, oh, how, are you? how can you be that dumb that I passed? I couldn't even envision it being a half a billion dollar company, let alone a $44 billion company. So there's people like Fred that see things. They understand computers and network effects. And I made a classic blunder of trying to evaluate a business based on what I knew. And the rest is history. I think 25 grand would have been worth about 8 million. And- Not that I've done talking. the math. Not that I've done the math today in the last 20 minutes. But here's the funny thing. Not only did I say no to Fred, I'm like, Fred, stop bothering me. It was just like, it's total Larry David thing. Not only is this idea bad, you really should stop calling me your brain ideas. And his next call was to Jeff Pulver. He had 25 grand and was just dialing his friends. And Jeff Pulver, who was a VoIP guy, he made some money. He was a geeky guy. Every time Jeff saw me in an event, the next few years, he would just run up and hug me because he said yes to the 20. <laughs> just come up and goes, you're the best. <laughs> but he so, made four to $8 million off my no. How does the
0: cabal work? Are you in the cabal now? And when you think about sizing up founders or you think about making an investment, how does that investment process work? Is it all just you and your group of guys get together and say, hey, we're in, we're out, we like this, you're smart, I want to follow along?
1: I think there's no rule that markets change. We are at the size where we don't like social signal. Product has to ring true to me. I have to be the user. My mistake with Twitter is I was the user and I could foresee it, but I didn't understand how to price things. This is the very early beginnings of network. effect. Yeah. I'll give myself a break there. That thing was priced disproportionately to the world. And by the way, that's how cheap it was. Three on 17. Three years ago, you were riding your bike and you'd called somebody and said, I got an idea to fart on the internet. Uh, I'm going to hire two engineers. And you were raising five on 25. Relatively, I screwed that deal up. But the way we size things up is a founder. We're not going to events. We're not doing the things that we had to do in the early days to build our network. We we're putting the vibe out there. It's like dating. People know who we are. If you haven't figured out who we are and you're cold calling me with an idea, shame on you. We're telling you what we do. We'll take cold calls occasionally because someone's lucky and it just resonates with us. What are the odds? You can now go research who these investors are and cherry pick. So most of the ideas that we come in are through a referral and they're like, you need to talk to Howard. And a lot of those are like, I really wish you wouldn't introduce me to that person because Out of respect, I don't send Fred deals. Part of the cabal is, don't fucking send me deals, man. We're friends, but you better be damn sure it's a good thing if you're going to send it to me. So we see a lot of stuff. We now have a network that we send it quickly out to people that we trust, if we don't know, depending on the referral. But really, it comes down to the founder. And it comes down to, do they have domain experience? And would we use the product? If the founder got hit by a bus, God forbid, could we step in and... Could I run that business? You know, every time we break that rule, it's a problem. Business should be quite simple to run. And we got away from that for about 10 years. They're either going to explode because everybody's going to use them and you're hanging on because there's growth. And that was just a fantasy land that we lived in as network effects. Now we're getting back to the idea. It's going to be hard to get a customer. So it's always changing depending on the market. So it's generally founder. We love domain experience because if you don't know what the problem is, what are you solving for? With Wallstrip, technology met pain point. I hated CNBC. It was quite possible to build CNBC. No one's still done it, which is crazy, but it was technology timing meets good idea. And that's why we sold it so quickly. So if you don't have that, you better have a founder that has unbelievable domain experience because they're going to get bored because they're going to get smacked in the head being told, no, you're saying it with your own company. You really should be passionate about this idea because it's going to take 10 years. Does that current framework that if the founder hit by
0: a bus, I could run it, it seems incongruent with Seed where so much is on the founder. So does that keep you out of high tech deals or advanced stuff? Does that change your portfolio?
1: There was an era where you could shoot darts. I was using Twitter. So I saw the world. I was making a show. So everything that I was using to make the show, every piece of technology that I was using to make the show, I could imagine it being used by a million other show producers. So I was in the mix. I was in this swirl of companies that were all going to work because my idea was working. So I was seeing all the best tools to make my show. And assuming there was going to be millions of other people making YouTube shows, how could I lose? Plus, customer acquisition was zero. That was a rare era. 2007 to 2012 was just rare. AWS, mobile phone, smartphone, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. They didn't know how to price their inventory. You could just spam your way to customer acquisition. No one cared. Now you're trying to get one customer from Twitter and you're like shadow bad. So that faucet is dried up. But you really have to build something great. And if I'm not the user, how can I give a founder great feedback? So we went through this loop where because prices were going up, people got sloppy and they were just 50 grand here. We're all guilty of it, but they weren't doing the work. Everybody was relying on someone else to be the guy that would step in. And that fails, whether it's SoftBank or AngelList, Rolling Funds. It's great ideas, but markets aren't that easy. And so we finally hit a point where it's like, guys, wake up. First of all, business does matter. Second of all, customer acquisition is not as easy as it was in 2008 when everything was free. And it's competitive as hell out there. And the world is shrinking because the idea of going to China in your third year, like Uber and Airbnb or whatever did, that era's over. That was a fantasy. The companies were thinking about going to China. That was supposed to be year 10. We got a lot of bad habits to get out of the system. So the one habit that matters is who is the founder? Why does he want to do this? Can you spend time with them to make sure that they understand this? And that's hard. There was a three, four year period between 2018 and 2022. It was like speed dating. There was so much money. If you asked a question, you were out. Can I see your cap table? Why? Uh, So silly.
0: What Um, if away from the regime changes are interesting of when the money is risk on versus risk off. I'm interested to know when you like a deal, but the founder doesn't resonate with you. I'm not calling out people, but what is it that you're like, I don't want to do this. Even though everything sounds great, you've walked away from things.
1: Here's the thing. It's fun to talk about the winners. We just went through an era where almost everything worked, and now we're in an era where almost nothing will work. So that's hard. I think where we make the mistake, and we're making mistakes majority of the time, because it's a power law business where a Robin Hood makes up for a million mistakes, or some of our winners are such big winners. So in a world where the math is the math, and math always rules, whether it's big data or small data, the math has to work. So in a world where math matters and history and prices matter and returns, just math, IRR, DPI, all the things that truly matter, price does matter. Me passing on Twitter at 17 made sense to Fred. He doesn't make fun of me. He goes, Howard, you understood why you weren't passing. It was eight times higher than what seed prices were at that time. And I mentally modeled, I don't understand this. So in a world where math matters, in 2006, the average deal is one on two or half a million on one. And so if money doubles every seven or eight years, going through two cycles, a great deal today would be one on five or one on six. We went through a period where it was two on 20 four years ago. Everybody was wrong. Even if you were right, you were making tactical allocation mistakes. Because if you're a seed investor, the money that is going to be made is made between the seed and the A. The alpha that I'm going to bring my LPs most of the time has to come from me being right at the seed stage, meaning I got to get that markup seed to A. So I need a four or five times markup for me to have a fund that does well. I'm pricing stuff at four to five and the company executes. Can we go raise an A round at 20 to 25? And for a period, luckily for me, that was how things were working. It wasn't that I was smart. I just got dropped into the right place at the right time and right mentors, and I learned. Okay, I'm not some genius. So if we flash forward to 2024, and assuming markets were correct in 2006, or some frame of reference, good founders today should be thrilled to raise money one on a six. But why Wicom and all these places are still mispricing things. Because they're playing a different game than everybody else. They're playing the index game. They're not playing the alpha game. I'm playing the alpha game. I don't have the luxury of saying I'm wrong all the time and have money coming in from all places. They're Fidelity and I'm Howie. So the alpha that I create, the only edge I have is can I price it right at C for the companies that work? Because I need to make my money in that A loop. Because remember, I assume the VCs are going to screw this up later. There's so many things that are still going to go wrong. So if I don't make that huge mark between C and A, I'm out of business.
0: So let's flip it from the founder side to the other venture capital side. We started off before we were on recording of venture capital and this network effect amongst the sharing. Why don't we describe how that process works and maybe a good angle would be, because obviously your network is huge, you have a ton of people and you have a deal and you can't call all of them and it fits for 20. How do you decide those first two phone calls you're going to make?
1: So this goes back to the stock right? So at the beginning, you would call people. And here's the thing about calling people you're gonna get really bad feedback because they have biases too. So I think the best investors don't share. That's the lie again of the last thing. It was like karitsu and social. Signal can work good or bad, depending on how you read signal. That's why I like price. As long as we're looking at the same price, I feel it's not rigged. I assume you have information. I have to do my own work, but at least we're starting from the same price. In a private market, it's very different. So I show you a deal that I love. What are the odds that you're going to like it? You're going to say, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. So in that work, where I'm going to get talked out of the deal, I'd rather just do the work, write the check. And if there's truly someone that I think fits, offer the term for 25K. But yeah, guys, you can't invest with us, but I think you might love this. And if you do, you can write a small check with us. The way Fred was offering me 25K. They were going to do the two or three million, but he thought I would really add value to Twitter. Fred understood. He wasn't just handing me money. He was just like, I think you will like this. He Mm -hmm. saw me as a node in the network that would help. So I don't want to put other people in. Same as me saying I love this stock. I don't want to put people in that position (laughs) to make them feel guilty. I'd rather write the check. And live and die by that. That's what people pay me for. Finally, at the size of the last 10 years where we can just write our check and we'll be embarrassed if we're wrong. It's my fault. We take blame. I don't like blaming other people. Yeah. So the founder screwed up. Still my pick. It's still me picking the founder. But when we do our job right, it's so much fun because we're right. There's no dancing in the end zone became that way because of social media, but it just gives you great satisfaction. It's like writing a book or being part of a play or a movie. When a company does an IPO or exits to another company, you were just part of the fabric of that thing. It's like being part of a play or production. And that's about it. Beyond that, we work for our LPs. Generally, they're rich, so you're not going to change their life. And now we're back to the grind of what this business is. You're working for accredited investors. They're already rich. It's not that glamorous a job to be a VC or a seed investor. And actually, it's a really hard job because the math is tough and markets are tough. So I think it's going to be fun again. It's been four or five years where I've just been miserable in this business because you knew it was broken. You didn't know when it was going to end. You didn't know why it was going to end. You didn't know if it was going to end. It just felt distorted. And now the world just feels to be normal again, including war. War is normal at some level. It feels like you can do your work. You can take your time. You can spend time with the founder. You can have a meal with them. You can see how they think. You can see if they like you, too. As I tell founders, why would you make a 10-year decision over a Zoom call? Don't you want to see how we live and how we think and whiteboard? So I think we're back to that era, which is how it should be. If you
0: were advising your son in law who wanted to go found a company and you're like, look, I want you to do this on your own or whatever, what advice would you tell them to look out for with venture capitalists? Not naming names, but just traits or characteristics or stories or anecdotes. You don't want to do business with someone like that.
1: I'm very lucky. So, my whole joy right now is mentoring. Luckily for me, I got nieces and nephews that have the bug. And I have two kids that are amazingly funny and kind of think I'm cool. What I tell people, is the there's two types of people, those that should be in sales and then everybody else. Because the everybody else thing is a very hard thing. If you're good at sales, you are the luckiest person in the world. That was me. I was just good at sales. I didn't have mentors. So I spent 10 years selling shitty products. If you're good at sales and you're selling shitty products, you're not really learning anything. You're an idiot. It goes to momentum. Why push a rock up a hill? Why not just fucking run behind a rock? Something should have momentum, meaning my nephew is working at Indeed right now. He was a great kid. He's very anal. And I said, you are perfectly wired for enterprise sales. He was so worried what he was going to do for a living. I said, they're going to give you a script. You're going to make those calls. You are going to put on those headphones and you're going to make those calls. And you're fucking going to kill it because this product's amazing. And you're going to have the best sales books. You're going to have fucking food. They may not pay you the most, but the product sells. So follow that playbook. Because it's in their interest, if they have the best product, they're also going to have the best salespeople, mm. and they're going to have the best of everything. And by the way, it's a good product. So everybody win, 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 win. So if you want to work for the best products, and you're a good salesman, you're a dream. And sales does not change. A salesman is a salesman is a salesman. No matter how much tech is out there, face-to-face, interpersonal skills, writing skills, follow-up skills, sales is sales. There's little tricks, but no, sales is sales. Everything else is much more complicated. For my son, as a salesman, I'm like, you're set for life. You know how to play golf. You know how to look people in the eye. You like money. And whether you're good at anything else or not, as long as you have a passion and know which product you're going to sell and you don't care how much money you're going to make, you're going to do great. Because if you're selling good product, you're just going to make good money. Everything else is much tougher because do you want to be an operations? Do I want to be a coder? Do I want to start a company? Do I want to be a number two? The first thing I tell my niece and nephew is, guys. The world full of people who want to be number one, be a great number two or number three. So, most young people, I'm like, why are you starting this? Do you really want to do this? And so, that's the main question. Go work at a great company, even forgetting the title that you take at that company. Go work at something whose product is flying off the shelf because that's going to attract the best people. And don't worry about your title within that company because there's going to be all this organic growth and you're going to be filling holes. So, whether it's liquid death or manscaped, or Facebook, go work at the best products because they will end up having the best processes. You'll be dealing with better situations, customer joy, and everybody will be in a better mood, and you're just going to get better habits. So, the two things I say go work at good companies, take less pay, don't worry about the title. I think it's the opposite of what they probably teach you in school. It's very much about momentum. I think go get yourself involved in something that's already working, and you can always over time, really develop this itch because you see a pain point to say, okay, this is working, but they don't have time to do this. Or this isn't working. They wrecked it. They should have done this. So I think you'll get more perspective going to work at a great company, no matter what you do.
0: If one of the nieces or nephews wants to go start their own company, yeah. this is your first MO to talk them out of it.
1: As soon as they start telling me something, I tell them I have three weeks to live and it's just not a good time. No, I mean, I haven't been pitched by my family yet. Thank God. They're just at that age in the mid-20s and late-20s. I haven't had a lie to them. COVID was a good thing because I was like, I can't come. I have COVID. Now people know I don't have COVID, so I have to go to things. But I think I dread the 25 k 50 k checks. But I'm also not dreading my kids wanting to start something. I don't know how I feel yet about a family niece and nephew coming to me. I think I'll just write the check, but I also will give them advice. If your family's not willing to write a check, that's not a good sign. Your friends and family do matter for writing these checks. People should believe in you. Getting someone else to bless the idea is also a really good idea. So I don't know how I'll behave yet. What advice would
0: you give them to look out for when they go out and they do that raise?
1: Don't raise can you get this business going and your first few customers? Again, I think we're in a new era. Don't about China. Don't think about Europe. Think about your neighborhood. Will this work? And if it will work, guess what? If you don't want to build a billion-dollar company, you're probably not going to have competition. So there's no rush. So in a world where you're not trying to build the next unicorn, who cares where you raise? And who cares if it was written up in TechCrunch? And who cares if Sequoia or Frank's Venture Capital is your investor? focus on the idea, and then how to make it work with as little money as possible. Because I just don't think that era exists anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm the cranky old guy that says, we went through that era. I'm glad I was lucky enough to be part of it. I just don't expect that to happen. Now that it's over, that was a miracle. And I hope it happens again, and then we all get rich, and no one has to have good habits. But I doubt that happens. Looking at
0: the public investing work you've done, the private if you had to compare and contrast, how would you think about what's more challenging and what brings you more joy?
1: They're equally challenging. There's no joy in public market investing because it's indexable. And I think Tiger tried to do that and then they were close. Everybody was chasing to be the black rock of, I had the idea myself, Masa tried to do it and everybody tried to copy them. So it was doomed because it takes time. Someone will get their YCs somewhat indexable. angel list, which I'm an investor in from way back, they have some form of way to be indexed. They could create products that you could get indexed. So that takes some of the fun out of venture capital. But seed investing and startup is is always going to be grassroots because the markets do change and neighborhoods change. Whereas public markets, indexing is just very powerful. It brought the cost down and there's so much history and there's so much capital. I think Even I have become an index. And I've always said, if you're going to be a hedge fund today, just index. And twice a year when the VIX does something weird, you do something. Why not just index? And people will pay 1 in 10 for you to have two times a year where you zig when the market's zagging. And at least you'll be within five or six percentage points of the S&P. For me, when the VIX is above 30, I pay attention. I have no edge other than that, because I know that when the VIX is above 30, I should be paying attention so if I was going to start a hedge fund today, I would closet index the QQQ. And then when I see the market fix above 30, I would either increase leverage, take some risk. So or if the fix was at 10, I would take some risk off. I think indexing works. I think direct indexing is going to be a massive trend. It already is. It was something for the rich. Now it's something that's going to get gamed. And there's all kinds of algorithms. Prices have come down to trading. We invested in this for ec.com, which is Robinhood direct indexing. So it makes it available to everybody. So I think direct indexing in the public markets just makes mathematical sense. So I feel that if you want to be in the market, indexing works. If you want to be a seed investor, there's some skill to be had. If you work within your means and you raise the proper amount of money and you follow the proper discipline and you have enough skill, I think there's alpha there. I think in between, doesn't interest me. I like both ends of the market. I'm starting to believe that if you're in the public market, pick your allocation and direct index yep. and you can fart around and around the edges with a few stocks. But if you're in the seed investment market where I get my joy, it's all about the hunt and it's all about putting the movie together and the packaging together and seeing it happen because it is so fleeting. So I do like it. The hard part about the VC investing was when SoftBank got into it, it took the joy out of it. Just slapping down three hundred million dollars and saying we anoint you the category winner took the fun out of the business because it turned what was an art form into a binary choice. If SoftBank or Tiger comes in with two three hundred million to a company that doesn't necessarily need two hundred three million, and the only reason they chose you versus the other one because the other guy didn't want to take the money, there's no art in that. It was more bullying, and it was stupid, really. Pretty genius for them to try that strategy because they didn't care about the mess that they left behind, but it wrecked seed investing because it took the skill out of it because I had a company that was working and now it has $300 million and now they got to go change the trajectory of the company. The world does not work that way.
0: Let's talk about rich man, degenerate man, angry man. This is one of your investment themes, so break it down
1: what this means. It's evolved a little bit, but rich man is the luxury thing. So in a world where Walmart and Costco exist to the point where they can even hurt Target, in a world where the mass market and margins exist, why would I compete there? So the only margins left are in the rich man economy. So I use LVMH as an example, not because I want to copy it, but because they just make up prices. It's all a story. And their margins are fantastic. So if I want to be in business, I want to have high margins. And if my ultimate game is to compete with Walmart, I'm already out of business. So the only chance I have is the rich man economy. So I'm fascinated by that. Luxury, things with margin, storytelling, art, curation. They're not billion-dollar things, generally. They're joyful, weird, artistic, high-margin ideas. The angry man I also avoid because I just don't understand it. But it's a huge industry, hate. What is the angry man? The Angry man's hate, vices, stuff that works. It's just, you can make money, but it's just soul crushing. I just think things like media, things that just get arbed away, because it's angry. There's only one way to be angry. There's Montel Williams, it's just angry. It's just hate. And that's a trend. It's a great trend. You can make a lot of money and I avoid it. And then there's the degenerate man, which is fascinating to me, because when people hear the word degenerate, they have a negative connotation. And to me, I think degenerate is a fucking hilarious connotation. It's like a joie de vivre. It's a lifestyle. I'm a degenerate. I'm not a degenerate because I drive drunk. I'm a degenerate because I like to have a beer. I don't mind what I pay for the beer. I like to bet. I don't like to gamble. I'll trade options, but I don't do it. I like the finer things of being a degenerate. And I think kids have so much time, they're all degenerates. And I don't mean vaping, but they do vape. My son vapes, I'm not happy about it, but that's, to me, not degeneracy. That's part of the angry man thing. But the degenerate is good degeneracy, is playful. Speculation is entertainment, is the other. Someone said to me, it was a great term, but I like the term degenerate just because it's a play on words. And I think We are going to have so much free time and sports gambling. My son is in Vegas at UNLV in the PGA program. I didn't even know he knew how to bet. I didn't even know he knew how to count. And then he's 23, and he's got his 19-year-old friends. He's laying bets for them. He takes their cat. He walks over to the casino, and he's fucking, it's like taking a food. He's like DoorDash of gambling. These kids are doing this shit. Whether you like it or not, it's happening. And I am fascinated by that. And I think we're at the early days of all this. It's this new financial markets that have evolved. So I'm very fascinated by this degenerate economy. And that goes to sports, teams, leagues, betting. I'm not for betting. It's just a foregone conclusion that we're there. For whatever reason, the government just said, fine.
0: The betting thing is fascinating. As I remember, again, it's not a judgmental thing. If you think it's bad or good day trading stocks, when DraftKings started, it was like a banned substance. It was just not allowed. You had to go offshore, open up an account, and now you turn on Good Morning America, and they've got daily fantasy points on the bottom, and it's just wild. We legalized marijuana. It's legal, and it changed how people feel about it. Daily fantasy betting went from
1: not allowed to everywhere. Correct, and I can't explain to you why, and I am friends with the board there I got offered to be in that deal at a $100 million, and I didn't do it. I don't like gambling. I don't gamble myself. I'm not saying I have anything against it. I have You no play enemy. golf, and
0: you don't gamble?
1: No. I'd rather <laughs> cheat and then not have to worry about it. Because then if I gamble, then I couldn't cheat, and I wouldn't enjoy the game. I don't keep score. So I just would prefer not to cheat. So I don't like to put myself in positions. So gambling to me is rigged. Hence, I never did it. I don't like rigged things. But now gambling is air. So the markets, where gambling is now, is it's like Schwab. I didn't see that, so I got that wrong. Kudos to Jason Robbins and team for surviving, because they have a million arrows in their fucking back, okay? That company was dead 40 times. So if I had invested in that deal, I probably would have written it off 10 times before I marked it up. Good luck turning it off now. It's air. They're the poster child for my degenerate economy index. I'm long DraftKings. I don't know the value. It's a poster child for this generation. They'd have to really fuck it up for this not to work, which they can do. can think But can. But they're the poster child for this generation, good or bad. A lot of good will come out of it because of data. These kids, it's data. These right. kids are working with data, and they'll be cheating and whatever. And I said, the game is rigged. But the price is the price, and people will learn how to work within these parameters.
0: Will you invest in crypto, and will you
1: invest in gambling? The angry stuff, no, but the crypto, yes, because crypto, to me, made no sense to me because I'm not a user. Luckily for me, Venmo, Visa, Wells Fargo, as flawed as they are, are magical, meaning they spend their whole lives trying to figure out who their customer is. It's rigged but it's rigged in my favor and the fees I can live with. So crypto never made sense to me. Bitcoin, the person who mentioned it to me first, I trust him. So I luckily got the bug from someone who understood the white paper and he understood supply demand. And he goes, Harry, this is just unbelievable. It's flawless. And it's pinned on the top of his Twitter handle, Yoni, at 11 cents. It's still there. I bought it and sold it. So if you get lucky, it's like a Fred Wilson moment. I was in Israel and I'm trying to invest in Etoro, And he's like, Howard, you should take this money and buy Bitcoin. And I'm like, what the fuck? I'm trying to give you money. And you're telling me about Bitcoin. And I go, I don't even know how to, what? You go to Mt. Gox and you just put 250 grand in. And I'm like, leave me alone. Just take my money. So yeah. And that was probably a bigger mistake than not doing Twitter. Now, the thing is, I would have left my money in Mount Gox and I would have lost it. And I would have killed myself.
0: You know what happened to that story? I have to follow up to make sure it's right because I was talking to this distressed credit trader who was buying claims. It happens like Lehman, Enron. Anytime yeah. a company fails, there's billions of dollars to be made by yeah. people that are willing Actually, to. Do it. Yeah. But I think what happened with the Bitcoin was the Japanese court, I had no idea, but this is crazy. They bought those claims at pennies on the dollar. And normally, when you have a claim against a court, you're owed dollars. So if I lent money to your golf course and you file for bankruptcy and I'm the only creditor. I come in and I go, okay, you owe me 10 million. We're selling the golf carts. We're selling the lights. We're selling the pads. We're selling the clubs. And if whatever I get after all that sales cash is mine. Now, if for some reason I sell all that stuff and I have 11 million, I get my 10 million. Everyone else gets what's left over. That's normally how a distressed bankruptcy works. I guess that in Mt. Gox, they were given the number of Bitcoin, not the dollar value. So if you are owed 1,000 Bitcoin at $0.10, cents, you're getting 1,000 Bitcoins
1: back. It no, turns right.
0: outrageous.
1: So as bad as the decision was not listening to Yoni, I did invest in eToro and indirectly own a lot of crypto. So I'm way overexposed to crypto because of Robinhood and eToro and StockTwits, all the fintech companies I'm in. But I never directly, now I own some directly just as a fart around mm-hmm. because fun, but I don't own it on exchanges and I don't trade it. And it doesn't interest me. I don't feel I have an edge. I don't even need it. I don't understand it. I don't like tech. I don't trust wallet. I don't trust Jack Dorsey on Twitter. Why would I trust him on the fucking open net? But do I think other people have an edge because they love it and they use it all day? Yeah, absolutely. So we've allocated money and I was in multi coin and I'm in a lot of good funds because I trust That they love it so much, and they're not cheating. I mean, by the way, they could be cheating in the world of SEC rules. I'm trying not to judge these people because I'm just allocating. But it's a wild west. I tell people, if you were going from Nebraska and you got to the Rockies, and some dude just before you went in the mountains said, "You're fucked. I can't believe you got all that gold in the stagecoach because there's Indians, there's crazy California people, there's bad weather, there's bears." And you got your gold right fucking there. And that wasn't that long ago. That was, what, 100-something years ago? That's how people moved their money. And that's where crypto is today with Mount Cox. Mount Cox was the equivalent of a horse-drawn carriage over the wild west of the world. Everybody's trying to steal your money, not just the Indians and the bad Californian. Fucking everybody. The odds <laughs> of Howard Lindzen surviving in the crypto world? Zero.
0: Let's talk about Robinhood and meme stocks, because I think that for many people who follow markets, they followed GameStop, they followed AMC, but the Luckin Coffee story is priceless to me. What happened there?
1: I don't know fully. Stock Twitch embraced that one. China to me is like the Wild West. I don't get it. I don't understand why it interests people. If you can't find ideas in your backyard, are you really working? So the Luckin Coffee story is interesting because only the Chinese could do fraud on something that doesn't need fraud. You fucking got coffee. You don't even have to cheat. This is the Starbucks
0: yeah. of China or was it was supposed to be the Starbucks allegedly. of China.
1: Correct. Let's use the word allegedly because I'm not an expert, but you had to cheat. What the margins aren't good enough on coffee that you had to cheat. So that's China to me. So obviously to me, it's just a joke. But there was this group on StockTwits that was like, well, yeah, it's stupid that they cheated, but this group, they actually are the Starbucks of China. And yeah. you're right, they don't need to cheat. But I was just so stuck in the China thing. And it's just that rule. Why even look in China? Are you really working hard if your best idea is in China? And that's my be, But that's how great markets are. Just when you think that you expect everybody, that's when there's opportunity. So I'm always fascinated by people that just get stuff right and then have conviction And then realize there is no incentive to cheat. And maybe they are going to have 5,000 stores in China and they'll print money. And the stock's gone from a buck to 30 bucks during a bear market. It was wild. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. The markets are always there to teach you a lesson. And I think that's why the degenerate economy interests me because who's to say who's smart? I ended up selling my company to CBS. I ended up getting money from Fred Wilson and the best investors. I ended up starting a pretty cool company. We live in a world where no matter where you start out, you can make it for the most part. Obviously, I started with good education, in a pretty good neighborhood, but no coding skills. There was no internet. So I'm saying there's always a reason to say you can't, but there's really tremendous opportunity. And I say that obviously with the jaded. I've been lucky. But for my kids, I have to tell them, don't get too far ahead of your skis. There's so much opportunity. Live within your means try and find some joy in the little things, because chasing all these shiny, bright objects is not going to make you happier. But the markets always have these opportunities for people. And I think the fact that they're not teaching price discovery and how to do this type of work in a world which is going to be run by the degenerates is a crime. The fact that high school isn't letting you run portfolios and the schools aren't giving you money to skin in the game, to be cut, to be wrong. To feel embarrassed from making a bad decision, to truly measure yourself, truly against everybody in the world—that's why crypto's fascinating too. You're playing against everybody in the world, 24/7, 365. If there is a flaw in your process, you are fucked, and the hole will get <laughs> filled. If you have a blemish or a hole, it may not find it right away but it will find it. And that suction, it will all get sucked out. FTX was doing it for a while. There are holes, but they get filled. Silicon Valley Bank's hole was filled. They get filled, man. No, it's why I love
0: markets. It's the most humbling thing. Howard, this has been a lot of fun. I have one last question. You're familiar with the cycle, optimism, excitement, euphoria, anxiety. Where would you say we are right now in markets?
1: I'm back on the optimism. I think we're in a mega weird bull market there's just money all over the place. It's not as abundant, but there's just so much learning that just happened with the Robinhood, Coinbase, crypto. There's just been this mass onboarding into the game of markets, Mm -hmm. that painful as it should be. Not everybody's good at it. And I just think, so you have to be optimistic because it was just so dumb for the last five years. And I think a lot of punishment was handed out. There's never been more reasons to not be optimistic. You got two wars, you have terrible leadership it feels like democracy is shrinking. It feels like Marxism, fascism is on the rise. I don't know. It's never been a good bet to bet on the end of the world. And World War III is being discussed. Uranium stocks are going through the roof. Bitcoin, gold, they're all working. So there's a lot of worry, but that leads to opportunity. So I'm, I'm definitely optimistic. I'm not very good at expressing that in public markets. I'm much more comfortable now expressing that in private markets. So we've been putting money to work for the last six months and writing checks. So I feel optimistic.
0: Awesome. Howard, thank you so much for all this time. This has been a lot of fun. I don't think I've smiled or laughed as hard for an interview. <laughs> I appreciate it.
1: And then your listeners are going to go, he didn't answer one question.
0: <laughs> but it's still I'm enjoyable. In all time. I prepared a lot of questions, none of which you answered, but it was still a lot of fun. I appreciate <laughs> thank it. you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.